Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards, host of pureandsimplebible.com, and I'm very grateful for this opportunity to con- to continue a study with you in Genesis chapter 4. Brother R.C. Cope, a young man from Oakdale, California, working with the church there with the evangelist Jimmy Cading and under the eldership there, is joining us, and we're studying through Genesis chapter 4. It's the first murder in the Bible. It's the first murder in human history, and uh, we're learning about lessons from Abel's grave. Now, we've been talking about Abel's worship, and now we're going to focus on the murder of Abel as well as his blood and the lessons that we learn from Abel's blood and comparing that to the lessons we learn from Christ's blood, not to spoil it too much. But let's jump back into this conversation, and I hope you've had the chance to read from Genesis 4, maybe pause this uh, recording and read that scripture real quick and then jump back into it, okay? So let's get back into this conversation with R.C. about lessons from Abel's grave. Now, let me review. Uh, we spent a long time on this first point. Uh, you've got three big points, Abel's worship, Abel's murder, and Abel's blood. So, uh, yeah, we've spent nearly an hour talking about Abel's worship, but I, I feel like uh, that's a big one for kind of laying a foundation with others who make it all about um, Cain's attitude. And the, the big point that I'm taking away from this is that there was likely an attitude issue, but there actually was a uh, a lack of faith, as the book of Hebrews has, has taught us. But um, what happens in this second point? So Abel's murder, Genesis 4, 8 and 9. Um, obviously, when I say what happens, we know he's going to die. But what can we draw out of this uh, first murder? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I'm going to tell us that we have something to learn from murder, but what is that? So Genesis 4, 8 and 9 says, Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, famously, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And you know, when we look at the story of Cain and Abel, I think really most of the time, this is where all of our attention goes, is to Cain murdering Abel. But it's interesting to me how the New Testament writer John, the Apostle John, in his epistle of 1 John, uses this as an example. So I'd like to go over to 1 John uh, chapter 3, and we'll read verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 says there, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So John's telling his audience here, this is how you love somebody. And let's look at the example he used, verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. It's an interesting lesson here. John's telling his audience, you should love one another, but you shouldn't love one another like Cain because Cain murdered his brother. It's kind of like, what in the world? Of course, (laughs) obviously. Obviously, I love my brethren not enough to murder them in cold blood. That seems like 
the very clear, blatant point. Right. But I think there's more to this. And, you know, Jimmy Cading phrases it a really good way, and I'd like to point that out. And I think this is really representative of the Christian life in a lot of ways, and we can talk about that. You know, Jimmy says, before Cain murdered Abel with his hands, you know where he murdered him? In his heart. Mm, I like that. Before Cain murdered Abel with his hands, he murdered him in his heart. And I think, you know, none of us really have thoughts of physically murdering people. That's not as common. But how easy is it to murder somebody in our hearts? How easy is it to assassinate somebody's character? How easy is it to gossip about somebody because it's good conversation? It is very easy to hate someone in your heart. And I think this is really important because John goes on, and we'll skip a little bit, to verse 14. The Bible reads, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death, and whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John says, this isn't a suggestion. This is a salvation issue. Yeah. How you love your brethren, how you hate your brethren is going to determine your relationship with God. And I think that's something that we all need to guard our hearts and guard our minds from is hating somebody in our heart. Because from a biblical perspective, that's just as serious as murdering somebody in cold blood. But I think sometimes we struggle to view it that way. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you have more in First John 3. Uh, just kind of skipping through here. The writer really does seem to make a big point emphasizing that when we don't treat our brothers well, uh, when we don't love them, that is really a murder of the heart. This is a powerful point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think this begs the question, you know, this is kind of scary. You know, I don't want to be the one who hates my brother. So what does it look like? What does it look like to love my brother? Because obviously I want that. And John's going to go ahead and explain that. In verse 16, he says, by this we know love. So what John's about to say, this is how you know you love someone, because he, because Jesus laid down his life for us. Mm -hmm. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And man, Mm. that's kind of a hard pill to swallow verse. Yeah. Yeah. John's, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, just, I'm looking at, uh, hold on one second. Um, I'm looking at at 1 John 3, 18, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and truth. So it's going to be important for us to demonstrate and prove our love and not just say it again and again and again. I mean, I feel that way in my marriage. Uh, There's times whenever I need to uh, love my wife, and it's not just about what I say. You can say you're sorry and you're not going to do something again, or you can put it into practice. And what a difference that makes with in a marriage where you're willing to live it out differently versus saying, I won't do that thing again, but then you make no practical changes. It would seem as though that's how we are to love our brethren as well is not just by telling them, but by showing it. Yeah, absolutely. And something that stands out to me and we can kind of skip through this point a little bit, but I do want to make this point is that John really emphasizes here the depth of our relationship with our brothers and sisters. You know, it's easy to come to church and just kind of have casual acquaintances, if you will. You know, these are people I see on Sunday and Wednesday. But John tells us here that we should love our brethren enough 
to lay down our lives for them. That's how deep our relationship should be. And that's kind of a hard pill to swallow, you know, but really, like I said earlier, the church is our family. These are our brothers and sisters. And so we need to strive to have deep relationships like that. And if we do and we develop and we cultivate those relationships, we'll be better for it. I guarantee it. Now, the Apostle John isn't the only one to make this claim of uh, not loving your brother and hating your brother is the equivalent of murder. Who else in the New Testament has uh, taught us this principle? You know, of course, Jesus taught about it. Jesus taught about it in the Sermon on the Mount, in his inaugural sermon, if, if you will. He says in Matthew 5, 21, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So Jesus is saying the same thing here. It's not about murdering people with your hands. It's about murdering people with your heart. And I think that's something that we should carry with us. Now, I want to make just one final point here about uh, Abel's murder. And I just want to skip down to a verse in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. You know, the Bible says there in 2 Timothy 3 and 12, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, we see here with Abel that the only thing that Abel did was serve God, and he was persecuted for it. And you know, we read this verse here in 2 Timothy 3 and 12, and we think, man, I don't want to hear that. If I'm living godly, if I'm living the life like I'm supposed to, I'm going to suffer persecution. But you know, what I think this verse allows for us to do is to kind of shift our perspective. You know, if we live the Christian life long enough, we're going to suffer something for it. Somebody's going to make fun of us. Somebody might bully us at school. Maybe one of our professors at college will make fun of us for believing uh, in Jesus. But you know, Timothy tells me, or excuse me, Paul says to Timothy here that, listen, if you're persecuting, take courage, because you know what that means? You're living your life the right way. You're living for Jesus. And that really kind of changes my perspective, or I try to let it change my perspective of when I'm persecuted or my faith is put on trial. All that means is that I'm showing the world that I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm letting my light shine. And so while the world might look down on us, you know what we can know is that God is pleased and Jesus is happy with us. Mm. And that's something that stands out to me. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Abel's murder um, segues into your final point about Abel's blood. And so in this Genesis 4 narrative, which, by the way, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but traditionally everything I've ever seen, like in picture form or video form, you know, when people recreate the first murder, it's always with a rock. But does Genesis 4 actually tell us how he dies? I do not think it does. I think he just, I think the Bible just said he murdered his brother Abel. I don't think yeah. it says exactly how he murdered him. I wonder I mean, why we got anything. to that point where we, we assume that he stoned him to death or he like thwacked him on the head with the rock. It, maybe it's because we assume that people, you know, the first people are going to be primitive and not have mm-hmm. tools or weapons or, or anything. But uh, 
I just find it interesting. It's kind of like Adam and Eve. They, you know, what fruit did they pluck, you know, from the fruit of the tree mm-hmm. of the knowledge of good and evil? We always assume it's an apple. And, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> we have no idea what fruit we have it was. No reason to. It's interesting how we, like, assign uh, this visual image of, of the murder. It's really not there. We've made it up. No, definitely not. For all we know, Abel could have used, or Cain could have used his fruit. You know, it's not, it's not something that we know. I'm curious about this final point you have about Abel's blood. So I, I see the value. Uh, we spent a long time talking about Abel's worship. And then there's a very uh, obvious connection to Abel's murder and the way we are to love our brethren. But this point of Abel's blood, uh, what am I supposed to make of that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And so to answer that, let's look at the Bible. You know, Genesis 4 and verse 10 says, and he said, this is God speaking to Cain. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you were cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And so I think this begs the question, if Abel's blood cried out to God, what did it say? You know, what was Abel's blood saying? Obviously, it said, I'm dead, but I think there's more to it than that. I think Abel's blood screamed out for vengeance. I think Abel's blood screamed out for justice. I think Abel's blood screamed out, sin, 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 a wrong has been done. But what's interesting to me, and we'll close here, and fittingly in the book of Hebrews, which we spent so much time in, I think it's interesting how the Hebrew writer uses the blood of Abel to make a point. Now, the Hebrew writer here is writing to these Christians who are thinking about going to the, going back to the old law. And so he's encouraging them. And he says this beautiful arrangement of words. I love these verses. And so we'll read it. Hebrews 12, verse 22, the Bible says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. The Hebrew writer says here, that the blood of Jesus speaks far greater things than that of Abel, because when we look at it, you know, everywhere that Abel's blood screamed, hate, 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 you know what Jesus' blood screamed? Love. For everywhere that Abel's blood said, sin, 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 Jesus' blood speaks forgiveness. For everywhere that Abel's blood spoke of separation, you know, Cain was to be made a vagabond and to wander for the rest of his life. Jesus' blood screams fellowship. Yeah. And reconciliation. And I think it's amazing that the Hebrew writer uses the blood of Jesus to make this point. And I've heard it said in a pretty good way. You know, the blood of Abel shows us that brothers, family members, people who show, share one of the closest bonds, you know, they can become enemies. But the blood of Jesus, the blood of the perfect Lamb of God, can take enemies, people who are at the farthest possible odds with one another. And it can make them brothers. Mm. It can make them family. And Jesus's blood and Jesus's death on the cross is amazing. Yeah. And I can't even begin to express that. Yeah. I, I 
what a powerful point, um, R.C. I think you've really done a, a masterful job of ending this Bible study uh, by comparing and contrasting the bloods. I wish that we would actually end there, but I have so many questions and thoughts that I'm going to go ahead and ask them and, and ruin this ending that you have for a really good <laughs> Bible study. So my apologies for not letting this be the thing that resonates. Maybe maybe we can circle back uh, in a few yeah, minutes. Yeah, no worries at all. Make, the, make that point again so that our, our audience will uh, end with the goosebumps that I have right now presently comparing the blood of Abel to the blood of Jesus. I want to, I have, I have a few questions for you. So I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. Is that okay? Yep. That's totally okay. fine. If I don't have an answer, though, you can't be mad at me. <laughs> I won't be mad. <laughs> I won't be mad. Well, before I ask my questions, I actually have a scripture I want to um, share with you that I guess I hadn't thought about it connected this way, but you've brought out this point about the blood of Abel crying out, and what did that blood say? And it made me think in the book of Revelation. Um, I don't know if you've have this in your notes, and, and maybe you just didn't have time, or if you've thought about it. But in Revelation chapter 6, uh, the Lamb is opening the seven seals. And there's a lot of symbolism in this, and so for our listeners, we're not um, going to focus on each seal and what's coming out and what it represents. But I do find it interesting that um, the fifth seal that is opened during this this time of great tribulation is a window into those who have been uh, persecuted and given their life for the Lord's cause. And I'd like for you to read for me. You got your Bible handy? Yes. Okay, would you read Revelation 6, verses 9 uh, through 11? Yeah, of course. There the Bible reads, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Yeah, I when I hear you talking about Abel's blood crying out, and what is it saying? Um, I think he's the first of many, which, you know, Jesus mentions, uh, I think you had this, let me back up a little bit, um, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, mm -hmm. you have a scripture there of, of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, that was murdered at the temple. Um, Jesus is making a point kind of from A to Z, you know, all the righteous mm -hmm. blood from A to Z. And Revelation, I think, gives us a window into those who have died and what they are crying out and, and saying. And I'm just affirming what you brought out about Abel, and that is it seems like those that have died for righteousness are crying out to the Lord saying, how long until you avenge us? How long until uh, we receive the justice that's due because our blood was shed? And I think it's a legitimate question. Here they are before the Lord. And even in the Lord's presence, they're crying out for justice. And uh, it's amazing to me that, that I, and I don't know exactly how this is going to work in Revelation 6 in, in that uh, plane of existence, because I'm not there. 
but those that are even in the Lord's presence are crying out for justice. And uh, he answers them, it's going to come, but it comes in my time, not in your time. He even tells those who are before his presence, wait a little while, but the Lord's justice mm-hmm. will come. I don't know how much comfort that gives you, but it, it does give me some comfort knowing that even those who cry out before the Lord are told to wait and that mm-hmm. they they then do wait. They they take the Lord's word and they trust in it, knowing that he's going to make all things right. You have any thoughts on that? I think it's really interesting. You know, that's a common feeling that we all have. Of course, you know, we aren't Christian martyrs because we sit here and talk today, but there's all situations in our life where we, you know, we wish we could get vengeance. We wish we could, you know, get the payback. But, you know, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so maybe that sounds like a struggle. Oh man, I want to do it. But really, it's a relief. It takes the burden off of our shoulders because it's not our responsibility to take vengeance out on anybody. But we can be confident that in God, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, that they are are all just, righteous, and perfect, and they'll take care of it. It's not our responsibility. And that's really what Jesus says here in Revelation 6. He says, listen, just wait a little while longer. I'll take care of it. Take your minds off of that and let that be my burden to bear. And I think really we can do the same things with problems in our lives and things that we might want to get, you know, vengeance or revenge for. Take it off our shoulders, give it to God, and let him take care of it. Mm-hmm. Amen. Now, um, I'm going to, sorry, I'm flipping in my Bible. No worries. So maybe uh, for the listener who's not knowing where I'm going, I'm just trying to flip over to a couple of things. Um, let's see. Uh, I want to look at... In Genesis chapter four, uh, a couple of things that I th- I think can help enhance the the story. In Genesis four verse six, God asks a question. In verse nine, God asks a question, and verse ten, God asks a question. And I find questions to be so powerful. Um, you know, we, we started this whole conversation off by talking about personal Bible study, and uh, I think the most powerful type of study is by asking questions. And a lot of times we are scared of questions because we're afraid where they might go, and we don't control the narrative. We want to control the narrative of the study. But I would suggest that you never control the narrative uh, unless you are, are comfortable asking questions and letting people answer from the heart. And I just wanted to read God's questions. Uh, First, he says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? His second question, where's your brother? And the third question, verse 10, what have you done? What I find is a pattern there is this line of questioning goes back to Genesis 3. Mm -hmm. And in Genesis 3, verse 9, God says, where are you? And then he says in verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And then his final question is in verse 13, what have you done? It's interesting Mm -hmm. that God's final question, both in Genesis 3 
And in Genesis 4 is, what have you done? It's the most direct question he asks. He Each each question, I feel like, is circling around the same concept, and that is God is trying to elicit confession and repentance. And it makes me wonder, what would God have done in Genesis 3 if Adam had started right off the bat by saying, Lord, it's my fault, and I shouldn't have eaten from it, and I beg your forgiveness? We won't know because Adam didn't do that. But I also wonder that with Cain. You know, what would Cain have done or what would have happened if Cain from the start had said, Lord, it's my fault. I should have offered the sacrifice that you you said to, but I didn't do that. And, and all the way down to the, the final question of what have you done, if they would have just said, I messed up. You know, what we see here is part of the human condition. And again, I say this a lot, but I think it really happened. I think it's a true narrative, but I also think it's uh, an example of how the human condition works. And that is that we, we've been given so many opportunities to repent that, and God is so gracious that there will come a time when it's just, it come, boils down to what have you done? And even in that, we've been given an opportunity to admit it, but so often we reject it and try to cover up because of shame and embarrassment and guilt and anger and frustration. So, yeah, uh, I don't know if you wanted to comment on that, but the, the pattern of questioning in, in these two chapters is really powerful for me. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, you might ask the question, why would God ask a question? You know, God is all-knowing. God knows everything. And that's true in both Genesis 3 and 4. God knew why Cain murdered his brother. God knew what Adam and Eve did. But I think it's really important, and it shows me that God wanted them to tell him what he did, what they did. You know, God wanted them to confess. I don't think he would have asked a question if he didn't want to give them that opportunity, right? And I think the same thing stands with us. We might think that confessing something is shameful, confessing something is embarrassing, but you know what? At the end of the day, God already knows. We're not giving him any new knowledge. Right. And so maybe that's kind of scary in a way, and I totally understand that. But again, that's also a relief that we're not telling God something he doesn't already know. So if we're confessing our sins to a brother or sister, or we're confessing to God in a prayer, listen, God knows. And the only thing that God wants is for you to tell him. And if right. you do, he'll forgive you if you're willing to turn around. And that's comforting to me in a way. Yeah, we think that confession is for the benefit of others. Like, I'm going to tell you this thing so that you'll you know, be able to do an action. But God already knows. So what, who is confession really for? It's for us. It's for our benefit so that we can have the relief and we can have a return to fellowship. Uh, God, God's not going to be shocked at anything we confess. Um, and I, I think sometimes people forget that. They, they think that there is going to yeah. be some shock that comes out whenever they reveal it. Hey, let me uh, make this 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 connection that, um, again, to Adam and Eve, but, you know, Cain murdered Abel, but I, you know, we don't, we don't have anything written down about who found him, but I have to assume it was Adam and Eve, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you've got a dead body. This is the first dead body. And first murder, the first murder. And so when Adam and Eve come across the corpse of Abel, um, 
I'm not into those cold case shows that a lot of people are. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus in my life who is, but I have people in my life who, you know, like the uh, cold case stuff and the those Dateline specials where it's like talking about these these crazy, crazy people that legitimately have issues. Um, but they'll talk about the corpses, and it doesn't take long for a dead body to start to decompose and uh I'm what I'm bringing up here is that when Adam and Eve found Abel, I don't I imagine he didn't look like the way they had ever seen him. And mm-hmm. it makes me think of James chapter five, verse 20, where it talks about how love covers a multitude of sin. And in that scripture, you know, the focus is on love and what it covers. But uh, it, it makes me think of how there is a multitude of sin. And how Adam and Eve's one sin multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. And I, I, I just have a feeling that whenever they came across him, that they probably realized for the first time just how bad sin was. The, just the wake that it would lead to. And, and so this ripple effect of their sin is now on full display. Uh, so it must have been tragic for them whenever they came across him. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that's interesting because I think that's really a great image of what sin does. You know, sin takes something which is the perfect human. You know, when we're born, we're born sinless. We have no sin in our life. And it takes something that's perfect and it has the potential to make it, you know, almost disgusting. And that's what we see with with Abel. You know, Abel was this young man, this breath with a lot of promise. And then sin took him. And in this example, at least, it made him into a, you know, a decomposing body. Yeah. And that's what sin does to our souls. That's what sin can do to our lives if we're not willing and if we're not ready to get rid of it. And I think this is a great image of that. And I've never really thought of it that way. Well, you're doing a good job because uh, our listeners don't see what you and I see, which we have the PowerPoint, which is your notes. We're not talking about that anymore. This is kind of off the cuff. And uh, as a young man kind of speaking off the cuff, you are finding a great response to all of these things I'm bringing up. So keep it up because I have one more. So are you ready to speak off the cuff one more time? (laughs) Maybe I got one more in me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, This might be a good one to bring back to your final point, which you had a great uh, final point about the blood of Jesus covering uh, and, and responding differently than the blood of Abel. But uh, I guess I'm going to frame it a little bit differently, and it's it's about how God is gracious even in times whenever people don't deserve God's graciousness. And I, I feel like God was gracious to Cain in three ways. And uh, I think God was gracious to Cain by first, he gave him an opportunity for worship and fellowship. And so here's God's grace extended. Do you want to have a relationship with me? Here is the way to do it. Abel took advantage of that. Cain did not. So he rejected God's graciousness. However, I think God was gracious um, when he gave him an opportunity to confess. So, you know, three times he, get, like I said earlier, he asked him questions. And three times Cain does not reply or does not answer the question appropriately. Either he's silent or he just rejects the question outright and, you know, says, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know where he is. But I think God's grace is extended by saying, hey, you have an opportunity now to make things right. 
And even after that, uh, after Cain rejected worshiping God properly, after he rejected confessing, you know, God uh, is going to cast Cain out, and Cain says, uh, somebody's going to find me and kill me. They're, they'll know that I'm uh, this 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 person. They're going to take vengeance on me. And so the Lord is gracious yet again by putting the mark of Cain on him. And so there's this mark. We really don't know what it is, but God's graciousness is uh, it's a warning. Nobody's going to do to you what you did to Abel. And so even in his defiance, God still was trying to give him good blessings. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of God we serve, who, similar to what your point was about the blood of Jesus drawing us in, God still was giving Cain opportunities to be drawn in. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think a way that God blessed Cain is he didn't kill him on the spot. You know, we look at a lot of these Old Testament stories, and people will sin against God. I won't go in examples, uh, per se, but Nadab and Abihu comes to mind. You know, these are people that aren't serving God and are sinning against God, and God, you know, he, he smote them on the spot. But here with Cain, he's gracious to Cain, and he gives him an opportunity. And in my mind, you know, whatever this mark of Cain was, I feel like God gave it to him with the intention of Cain always being able to look at that and feeling guilt and hoping that that guilt that God gave Cain would leave him or lead him to repent. You know, I really think that was God's desire. If God didn't expect Cain to repent or didn't want Cain to repent, he would have killed Cain on the spot. But he didn't because he wanted him to come back to him. And the same is said for us, you know, as you laid out all those different things, God gave Cain an opportunity to worship. God gave Cain an opportunity to repent. Listen, God gives us those same opportunities mm-hmm. today mm-hmm. as New Testament Christians, and he wants to have a relationship with us. And, you know, something I didn't point out earlier, but a good point that was pointed out to me about John four twenty three. just to go back to this, uh, John four twenty three says, you know, we talk about spirit and truth. It says, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. And that's a powerful point. That's a powerful point that God is looking for a certain type of person. And, you know, so often in the world we talk about, man, how do I find God? How do I find God? Why is God not there for me in my bad times? Listen, if we're willing to obey God and meet him on his terms and have a loving, obedient, faithful heart, soul, and mind to God, he's looking for that person. God wants that person. And that's powerful to me. Because that tells me that the almighty creator of the universe, the one who formed everything we look at, wants me. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful. Amen. It is. That, that could be a good spot for us to end on. But I do like to ask my guests if there's a final word. So in addition to what you just said about kind of wrapping up this whole idea and, and how God is, is gracious in, in giving us so many opportunities. Do you have a final word? Uh, is there something that you usually like to say to end this with? No, I don't have anything particular. Uh, you know, I kind of gave the ending to my sermon. We can, <laughs> we can do it again. But listen, we talked about the blood of Jesus. If there's anybody out there that isn't covered by the blood of Jesus, take that step. I don't know if this podcast is what's going to be motivating to you, but do it because there is no greater blessing. There is no greater peace of mind. And really, and truthfully and objectively, 
There is no better life in a practical sense than the Christian life. God knows what's best for us. God knows what we need. And he gave us Jesus to start that process to develop that relationship with him. So take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Take advantage of that forgiving, that loving, that reconciling blood of Jesus. And it'll be the best decision that you ever make. It's by far the best decision that I've ever made. And I'm sure that you can say the same thing. Amen. Well said. Well, thank you, brother, for coming on and talking about this. I do hope that others will uh, take copious notes on Genesis 4 and uh, be able to appreciate that scripture better. So thank you very much for your study. Thank you, brother. I'm so thankful for Brother R.C. and for the work he does, the excitement, the energy that he has. Uh, he's a great young man, and uh, I consider him a friend. Uh, even though we haven't known each other too long, he's one of those types of guys that whenever you meet him for the first time, you know you've met a new friend, and you've met a friend for life. So, R.C., you're a beloved younger brother, and I thank you very much for the work that you do and for the enthusiasm that you have whenever you do that work. Thank you. Now, everyone else, I want you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. I want you to leave a five-star review if you love it. And uh, whether you're on listening on Spotify or Apple Podcast or SoundCloud, I'd love for you to leave a five-star review. It really does help me get the analytics boosted a little bit more. I hope to be a little bit more steady. Uh, I have finished my therapy program that for the past two years has really taken a lot of my time. I have more information that I can share about that. If you're so interested, then holler at me. You can send me an email at pureandsimplebible at gmail.com, and I look forward to serving the Lord in that capacity as I continue to serve the Lord as an evangelist as well. So uh, there's a lot of information on the website, pureandsimplebible.com. Go and check it out. And always remember, God loves you very much. And I do too. Lord willing. See you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you.